The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Welcome back to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast with this special bonus episode for Easter Tide. What a joy it is to greet you post-Lent, post-crucifixion, post-resurrection even, to affirm the great mystery of our faith, that Jesus died, Jesus was buried, he has risen, and he will come again. You know, one day is simply not enough to celebrate this mystery of our faith and its implications for our lives. We do need a whole season to celebrate the resurrection, and that season is called Eastertide. So it's not just a day, it's actually 50 days, eight Sundays, seven weeks, however you want to look at it. Um, It's longer than Lent, which I think is wonderful because there are some areas of our lives where resurrection takes longer than dying. And the church calendar itself teaches us that the implications of the resurrection are so explosive, uh, so radical, so life-changing, that we do need an extended period of time to explore and even appropriate the reality of the resurrection and to figure out what it means to us. What does it mean to live in a world where a resurrection has happened? What does it mean to us uh, to live in a world where the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ has happened? And what does that mean for our lives? I want to create space for us to explore the mystery of the resurrection and to reflect on the Easter season as a time to live in the mystery and to figure out what that mystery means for us. And I'd like to do that by beginning with some of the post-resurrection stories where the people who are actually involved in Jesus' life and death and burial and and um, eventually the resurrection, how did the resurrection affect them? And what do their stories tell us about how we might engage this season and how we might live in the mystery, this greatest mystery of our faith that um, Jesus has now risen? So my favorite thing about the Easter story, aside from the resurrection itself, is all the stories about Jesus' post-resurrection visits with people. Because what I think is so amazing about Jesus, and one of the things that makes me love him so much, is that as our resurrected Lord, the first thing he did after the resurrection was not to set himself up in a castle somewhere. It wasn't to proclaim anything um, or bring any big message. It was to visit and to seek out every single person that had been hurt and traumatized by the events of the crucifixion and to seek them out and to repair damage, to help them with their post-traumatic stress, to help them to make sense out of what they had witnessed, to really help them to understand that they were living in a new reality and what that meant for them. And he was so gentle, he was so tender, and he uh, created conversations for each person that were exactly what they needed after what they had been through. So you know that in the Transforming Center, we talk a lot about the practice of finding ourselves in the story, the biblical story. And so I'd like to invite each one of us to find ourselves in the stories that take place after Easter when Jesus is seeking out his followers to really help them to come back from what they had been through. I'm going to share four snapshots and use the snapshots of these post-resurrection visits to invite us in to the mystery of how Jesus is with us in our lives, in our very real lives now, um, after all that we've been through in this last season. So let's start with the very first encounter that Jesus had with one of his followers after the resurrection, and it was the place where Mary was weeping in the garden, Mary of Magdalene, in John 20. 
verses 11 through 18, and she's there weeping. And one of the interesting things about any of the readings of the resurrection story is just how faithful the women were. And the women didn't seem to have much fear about being around. Uh, They just wanted to be around Jesus. They wanted to stay with him as he suffered. They wanted to be there to care for his body um, as it was brought down from the cross and also to prepare it um, for the burial and to to treat the body as it needed to be treated very respectfully um, in the tomb. And so all of that work has been done, and Mary Magdalene is still really grappling with her loss, and she's weeping in the garden after she's done everything that she can, and that's the moment where Jesus encounters her. And I, I think that the story of Jesus seeking out Mary in the garden and having a conversation with her um, gives us the opportunity, invites us in to an, a reflection on the place in our own lives where we also are standing beside a great emptiness weeping, where we've done all we can to make sense of it. We've done all we can um, to pretty it up a little bit. But the truth is that we are still living with a great loss. We're still living with a great emptiness. And so that's what Mary is processing. And I think the story of Mary weeping in the garden invites us to move in as close as we are able to the empty places in our own lives and to let the tears come, to feel the emptiness of that and to wonder how easy or how difficult is it for us to acknowledge the empty places in our lives, to let the tears come, to grieve and go all the way to the bottom of what this loss means to us. Um, And then as we're ready to express our deepest feelings and give honest words to what it is that we're feeling and to stay with whatever emotions come for as long as we need to and to trust that Jesus is going to appear to us in that very place. And doesn't that take a lot of faith? I think a lot of us, we tend to distract ourselves and distance ourselves from the emptiness that we feel. All of us have places in our lives that feel empty. All of us have places in our lives that are hard to face. And this story invites us to face it and not only face it, to actually sit in the middle of the emptiness waiting for Jesus to come. Of course, Mary didn't know that Jesus was going to come. She thought that her her emptiness was going to be a permanent situation for her. Um, but she's brave enough to sit there and weep. And so even though she doesn't recognize Jesus at first, Jesus does come. Jesus does come, um, and he calls out to her. He uses her name um, and almost uses her name speaking into that vulnerable place as a way of saying, I know who you are. I know where you are. I know what you're going through, and I am here. I am here with you in this place of loss and emptiness. So I think the question that emerges from this story is to say, am I able to sit in the place of my own emptiness and to wait for Jesus to come and to believe that resurrection, um, and what I mean by that is that the living presence of Jesus might be able to be with us there in some way. Not that the situation necessarily is going to be changed completely or taken away, but that Jesus actually joins us in that place. So that's the first encounter, and Jesus is very loving to Mary. But the other thing that's interesting is that she reaches out to touch him, but he won't let her touch him. And I think that that is not because Jesus was averse to touch. We know that he received touch and gave touch very openly and willingly. But I think in this case, Jesus is saying, you know, I'm trying to tell you that even though I'm back and even though I'm here, our relationship is going to take a little bit of a different turn now. You're not going to be able to relate to me physically in the body as you've done um, in the past, but now you're going to need to get ready to interact with me in new ways. And of course, he knew that he would be leaving them physically and that the Holy Spirit would come. So already he's trying to give a signal and a hint that 
their relationship, while it will be real, it is going to be different than it was. So um, so that's the first snapshot of a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, inviting us to be aware of the place where we're weeping or standing behind a great loss or standing beside a great loss and to wait for Jesus in that place and to notice how Jesus shows up and calls us by name and speaks into that place of pain. The next one that um, all of you who know me, know me know me well enough to know that I love the story of the road to Emmaus, and that's another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. And in this moment, as we know, Jesus joins two of the disciples as they're walking along the road trying to process the traumatic events of their weekend and the difficult emotions that were returning within them. And he actually asks them questions as a way of drawing them out, uh, getting them to talk about what they've been through. Many of us are also walking the road to Emmaus, which I like to think of as the road between the now and the not yet, where something has been ripped from us, some aspect of our existence, something that we've identified with, something that's brought meaning to our lives, something that's brought structure to our lives, and it's been ripped away just like it was for the people on the Emmaus Road, and we're still walking that road between the now and the not yet, and we're acknowledging the fact that sometimes it takes a while for us to understand what resurrection actually means in our lives, and There are times when resurrection takes longer than just a day also, and we'll talk about that towards the end of the episode. But um, this, this appearance of Jesus after his resurrection where he actually seeks out these two traumatized disciples who cannot yet figure out how they're going to put their lives back together. The vision, the dream that they had for their lives has now gone away. It's been ripped from them. They're trying to find their way back to some sort of normal existence. And Jesus does this very kind and loving thing, and he seeks them out on the road. Um, He seeks them out in the midst of the questions that they're asking, in the midst of their dashed hopes and disillusionments. And so for me, the question that comes out of the road to Emmaus is, um, what, what is the disturbing event? What is the traumatic event? What's that hard thing that's happened in your life uh, from the recent or the distant past that you need to talk to Jesus about? And that uh, you need Jesus to meet you on the road. You need Jesus to meet you in the context of your question. You need Jesus to help you to make sense out of something that right now does not make sense. And I think we all have those experiences in our lives, these things that happen to us that just do not make sense. And so Jesus loves to be with us in that place. And in fact, our willingness to ask the question actually seems to be what draws Jesus into the experience, what draws him to us, what draws him into the conversation. So as you might, as you think about an event in your recent or your distant past that is disturbing to you and doesn't yet make sense, what are the emotions that you experience as you relive that event? Can you stay with these emotions um, long enough for Jesus to meet you in that place? Um, can you invite Jesus and urge him to stay with you for however long is needed? And as you continue to process the event over time, notice the places where Jesus' presence uh, causes that visceral burning that the disciples experienced on that road, um, where Jesus reveals some sort of truth to you through Scripture, or where where you experience that burning of your heart resonating with something, some truth that he's telling you. Um, share these moments of recognition with people around you. And I think this is a wonderful question for our spiritual companions to ask each other coming out of the Easter season or as and as we live within the Easter season and seek to live within the mystery, is to ask one another, where are you experiencing Jesus on your road between the now and the not yet? What is the Emmaus road for you? 
that place between the now and the not yet, and how are you experiencing Jesus there? How is Jesus meeting you in the context of your questions? Where is your heart burning within you with a sense of recognition that Jesus is there with you on that road? What a wonderful question for us to ask one another as uh, spiritual companions during this Easter season. So let's let's ask that a little bit over dinner or uh, in a quiet conversation with a friend or with a loved one. Where are you experiencing Jesus on your road between the now and the not yet? What's he saying to you on that road? Where are the places where your heart is burning within you with some recognition that it is Jesus who is interacting with you? So that's the second snapshot, Luke 24, 13 through 31, the road to Emmaus um, and how Jesus chose to seek out those disciples and be with them and make meaning for them um, as they processed what it was that they had been through. A third snapshot is what I would call breakfast on the beach. This is the encounter where Jesus seeks out Peter. And, of course, Peter's story is one of the threads in the whole Lenten journey and the the journey of Holy Weekend. His story is one of the most tragic and difficult to face into because he was the person who always seemed to be the most confident about what he believed in. He was kind of a blustering person who made these big, brash statements about the fact that he believed in Jesus and that he would follow Jesus to the end and that nothing would deter him. And then in a heartbreaking um, moment, he becomes afraid and he betrays Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. So we can only imagine what Peter is feeling in terms of shame and betrayal or feelings of his own betrayal, um, regret, the deepest kind of regret that he wasn't able to stand by Jesus, that he wasn't able to keep believing, that he wasn't able to stay um, faithful and grounded in his own faith. And so he's probably burying those feelings by just getting back to life as normal, working really hard by trying to catch fish. And so this morning, this Sunday morning, um, after this horrible weekend, Jesus is waiting for Peter and the other disciples as they're out fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and um, they're having a hard time catching anything. Jesus gives them an instruction about how they might catch more fish, and then he is actually preparing breakfast for them on a fire um, on the beach. And I love to imagine myself. I've been on Lake, on the Sea of Galilee, and I could imagine that beach. I can imagine um, on this morning, maybe the waves are quiet. They're just sort of gentle waves that are lapping on the shore. Um, the disciples are out working really hard, very discouraged that they can't even seem to get back to their normal life, even though they're trying so hard. And they smell fish cooking over an open fire, and there's Jesus, and they they start to recognize him in the mist. And Uh, Then they come rushing into shore. Jesus gives them instruction for how to catch some fish, but he's ready for them. He's preparing breakfast, and um, you're hungry, you're tired, you're holding in some pain and disappointment that you haven't had a chance to process, but there's Jesus. And what does it feel like to be invited by Jesus, to have someone care for you in this practical way with food? You don't even have to cook your own breakfast. And then that very gesture lets you know that even though you're feeling really uncomfortable about the betrayal, Jesus is there just as loving, just as open, just as emotionally available as he ever was. And maybe for the first time after these events, you have some hope that maybe your relationship with Jesus might also be able to be repaired. So I think this story is wonderful because Jesus is initiating a conversation that offers the opportunity for relational healing because that's what Peter needed. He needed healing from the wounds created by his betrayal. He needed to reestablish loving connection with Jesus. He needed to know that Jesus understood him, that Jesus wasn't angry. He needed to know that they still had a committed friendship. So maybe you could imagine yourself 
um, processing something that you feel shamed about, something that you are just not proud of, something that you wonder if you can ever repair it between you and that person, or even if you can repair it in your relationship with God. And imagine yourself seeing Jesus on the beach his loving presence inviting you in, inviting you to sit quietly with him there, to strengthen you physically with food and with rest, and then for him to initiate a conversation. And we know that Jesus did this, that Jesus initiated a conversation with Peter about all that had gone wrong. And he does not pretend like nothing's wrong. He doesn't pretend like nothing happened because that's not good for the human soul. The human soul needs to get it out. The human soul needs to be able to talk openly about our sins and our betrayals and our and our failures. And we need to receive the unconditional loving presence of Jesus. And we need to experience the fact that our relationship can be restored. So can you sit with Jesus on the beach in this um, season where we're exploring the mystery of what the resurrection means to us, the mystery of the risen Lord who is seeking us out and seeking out relational healing? Um, Can you think of other relationships that might be broken or distant that might need to have loving um, commitment reestablished? And without jumping ahead too much, first of all, can you just sit with Jesus with whatever emotion or desire comes and just talk to him about it? Talk to him about how bad it feels um, for that betrayal to have happened. Talk to him about what it feels like to have so much shame inside. Talk about the fact that you're not even sure that rep- that repair is possible. Is there anything in your relationship with Jesus that feels distant or broken? Can you talk to him about that? And what do you hear Jesus saying to you in response? What an amazingly wonderful place uh, to be in terms of processing the mystery of the resurrected Lord with us here now in our ordinary lives and in our most human places. So that's the third snapshot, breakfast on the beach, Jesus preparing breakfast, just waiting lovingly to repair whatever it is that's broken. And then finally, uh, there's this moment that I call um, loved, love through locked doors, and that is John 20, 19 through 29. And in this particular story, Jesus is seeking the disciples behind locked doors, and also in particular Thomas, um, because Thomas was the one that missed out on being there when Jesus first appeared. And even though the other disciples said they had seen him, Thomas said, I will not believe until I see the holes in his hands and the wound in his side. And so this passage, this uh, phrase from this particular passage of scripture in John's gospel says that although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Although the doors were locked, love that caused Jesus to press through the locked door and to find a way in. Now, those of you who have been familiar with my teachings, you know that I usually teach that Jesus is polite and that Jesus does not push in where he is not invited. But this verse gives us a slightly different perspective on Jesus. And I think this is a situation where the door is locked, locked from the inside due to fear, and we don't even know how to open it. But there is this deep desire inside that we want to open it. We really wish we could. We wish we could transcend our fear and open the door. But we are behind this locked door. And even though the door is locked, there is a deeper desire for Jesus to come in. And so Jesus in this story shows himself to be in touch with the deeper desire. And Jesus knows it. Jesus knows that we want him in and he finds a way. And so this particular incident where Jesus finds his way through the locked door makes me want to ask what doors are locked in my own life. Um, Where is the place in me that is walled off, that is hidden behind some sort of defense mechanism? 
And how is Jesus present with me there? And can I recognize Jesus somehow coming through the locked door, even though I didn't open it, open it, even though I couldn't find a way to open it, even though I was still being defensive or living with defensive strategies in place, um, Jesus finds his way in. And I find this interaction, this snapshot of the post-resurrection Jesus to be um, really stirring as well. It causes me to realize just how much Jesus loves us all because he knows when the door is locked, but we wish we could open it or there's some fear that prevents us. And Jesus is not limited by that. Isn't that the most hopeful thing to know that even when we lock a door, even when we're walled off, even when we are stuck in our defensive mechanisms and structures, that Jesus is not limited by our locked doors. He will not violate us, but he will find a way to come in and meet our deepest desires, even when we do not know how to open those to Jesus. And his word in that place is always peace. Peace be with you. Like, don't be afraid that I've come in to this place where you didn't want me to come. We're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. We're going to relate to each other right here behind the locked door. And I love the idea that Jesus um, wants to love us, even in these places of our doubt, that he's pursuing us, even when we are having a hard time believing that a resurrection could happen in our own lives. Jesus... um, is ready to be with us even in that. And so then, so there you have Thomas. You know, you have Thomas who is doubting because he hasn't seen enough yet. And in J- Thomas's story, I think we are actually being invited also to doubt our doubts. That those things that have been hard for us to believe, those things that we've been hesitant to believe, those things we become disillusioned about, that Jesus says, doubt your doubt. Call it into question. Sit with it for a while. Is it really true? Or are you going to live out of your doubt? Are you going to live out of your fear? Or are you going to believe? Are you going to believe that I can do something better and something more? So to um, to to be in, in Thomas's place, to have Jesus come in to the lock, through the locked door, but to doubt your doubts, to doubt your disillusionment. And even though your doubts might feel real, even though you're just not sure, to realize that your doubts could be wrong just like Thomas's doubts were wrong. But the good news is that Jesus is willing to come right on in and be with us in that place. He's not offended. And then, of course, it's a beautiful thing as we wrap up our reflection here that on Easter, Jesus seems to offer a special blessing to Thomas and to all of us who doubt. Um, all of us who doubt can receive Jesus in that place of doubt. And then there's a special blessing for all of us who have not seen and yet have believed, which encompasses all of us today, right? None of us living on the planet today have had the chance to be with the living Christ, uh, to put our hands into his, the hole in his hands, to put our hands into the wound in his side. So we are all especially blessed, um, all of us who are on the planet now who are able to believe without actually seeing have a special blessing. So I think this snapshot actually invites us into the question, what's your doubt this Easter? What are you doubting? Uh, Where's the place where you just can't believe it's true? Um, And can you doubt your doubt and against all odds actually choose to believe? So friends, I hope that the next eight weeks, the next eight Sundays, that we will find ourselves in the stories of these post-resurrection experiences, and that we will sit in those stories until we find ourselves there and encounter Jesus there, and that we will use these stories as a way of entering into the mystery of our faith, um, and that we will see Easter tide as an opportunity to live fully in the mystery of a resurrected Jesus who is with us in all the hard places of our own lives, and to ask the question, what does it mean for me to live 
in a post-resurrection world. Now, I also want to acknowledge, too, that even though Jesus' resurrection took just a weekend, for some of us, the things that we're looking for Jesus to resurrect in our lives are going to take a little bit longer. So there are times when resurrection does take time. And for many of us, we're still sitting on the other side of Easter Sunday with pains in our lives, things that are not resolved, things that we're still disillusioned about. And that's okay, because there are some resurrections that don't happen quite so miraculously, but they are miracles nonetheless, and we still do need to wait. Um, So I think sometimes we need to celebrate the slower resurrections, right? Those places where we're longing to experience the resurrected presence of Jesus. So I'd like to close with a poem, as I love to do, and this poem is called Resurrection. It's written by a woman named Marianne Bernard, and I found it out of the Guide to Prayer for Ministers and Other Servants that we use in the Transforming Center quite a bit to stay together in our scripture readings in community. So it's called simply Resurrection, and after we hear this poem, we'll sit for a moment and just sit sit present to the places in our own lives that still need the resurrected power of Jesus, where we're willing to sit in the mystery and wait um, for Jesus' miraculous intervention. Resurrection. Long, long, long ago, way before this winter's snow first fell upon these weathered fields, I used to sit and watch and feel and dream of how the spring would be when through the winter's stormy sea she'd raise her green and growing head, her warmth would resurrect the dead. Long before this winter's snow, I dreamt of this day's sunny glow and thought somehow my pain would pass with winter's pain and peace like grass would simply grow. The pain's not gone. It's still as cold and hard and long as lonely pain has ever been. It cuts so deep and fear within. Long before this winter's snow, I ran from pain, looked high and low for some fast way to get around its hurt and cold. I'd have found, if I had looked at what was there, that things don't follow fast or fair, that life goes on and times do change, and grass does grow despite life's pains. Long before this winter's snow, I thought that this day's sunny glow The smiling children and glowing things and flowers bright were brought by spring. Now I know the sun does shine, the children smile, and from the dark cold grime, a flower comes, it groans, yet sings, and through its pain, its peace begins.
on behalf of Ruth and the entire Transforming Center staff, thank you so much for listening. We're currently accepting applications for our next Transforming Community Spiritual Formation Experience for Christian Leaders. You can learn more by visiting transformingcenter.org TC. This podcast is a ministry of the Transforming Center and is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. If you've enjoyed Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast, please leave us a review and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can also become a partner of the podcast and get exclusive benefits by visiting transformingcenter.org patron. Thanks so much for your support and for listening to Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership.